And Break Off is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets along with instant match updates for all games. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the apps. You can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, uh, this is Handbrake off the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm joined, as always, by James McNicholas. Hello, James. Hello, mate. How you doing? Uh, Amy will be coming on later. She's currently in quarantine at our home. And, uh, and also down the line, because he didn't want to be within 100 yards of us, the Arsenal legend, Mr Lee Dixon. Hello, Lee. How are you doing? Very nice in my kitchen, so I'm away from you lot. You're quite right. Thanks, Lee. We're in a in a very nicely air-conditioned space where hopefully some fresh air is coming in as well. Now, it has been a mixed week uh, for Arsenal fans since the last podcast. Obviously, a disastrous loss to Olympiacos last Thursday. We did beat Portsmouth last night in the FA Cup. I think the big event, though, I think we can all agree. Uh, thank you to Watford FC for their glorious win over Liverpool. That was a relief, wasn't it? Well, yeah. It's, uh, I was at the game. I was doing the game for NBC, so I was... Um... I had my professional head on, obviously, <laughs> and, uh, and I, I did have a little. All the Watford fans were just asking me. I must be really chuffed because being an invincible, you'd like to keep your record. <laughs> and right. did you I did just, you disabuse them of that notion? It's, do you know what? There's just so many people think I was. I can't be bothered to say I wasn't anymore. So I'm sorry, Lauren, but I played all of that season. <laughs> <laughs> well, and beautifully you played as well. I mean, we'll talk more about the Invincibles uh, later on, but we did want to talk about our favourite moment from the Invincible season, as a, uh, as it is going to be an Invincible season for another season. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it will always be. But it's nice to, to have it on our own. James, we'll start with you. Favourite moment from the Invincible season? I had to go for Martin Keown's confrontation with Ruud van Nistelrooy. I mean, there's a great photo of him sort of hanging above Ruud, like a kind of, like a sort of demented bat almost, suspended <laughs> midair above him. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that in that moment, something was kind of forged, you know, sometimes out of that antipathy and that aggression, you know, that, that fracker that happened, something was sort of created between that team that, that sustained them for the remainder of the season. So, yeah, I love that moment. It's got to be that for me. OK, Lee, um, uh, there's another question I want to ask you, but a favourite invincible moment? Well, uh, how can it not be that moment? I was trying to wrap my brains before and I... Um, that just keeps popping up into my head every five minutes. And we did a, I did a charity uh, pies and pundits Q and A thing that I do for my wife's charity. And um, one of the guests that we had on there was Martin Keown. And, and as a present uh, for doing it free of charge and not charging me, was uh, I gave him a picture. I'm sure he's got a million of them of that moment of the hanging bat, as you quite rightly said, James. And uh, and everyone clapped and I gave it him on stage and he was like, oh, brilliant. And then he, then, he, 
then he promptly wanted to explain to me that it was that that was a bit of a misunderstanding. And I said, "Hang on a yeah. minute, you're hanging over him, just about to land on his back." How? And he tried to talk himself out of it, saying that it wasn't as bad as it looked, but. He failed miserably. Well, quite. I mean, it's interesting, actually, because I did speak to him about that a mm. few years ago. And he and it's not that he was ashamed of it, because I don't think he's ashamed of anything he did in an Arsenal shirt. But I think he, he, he thought that was, that was not behaviour befitting uh, an Arsenal player. But the sure. truth is, any Arsenal fan from that era will talk about that moment above all else, because... Let's be fair, we all hated and still hate Ruud van Nistelrooy. Yeah, I yeah. think there was so much history with that player, wasn't there? And even Arsene Wenger would always talk about him after the games, you know, the dive in the gamesmanship. And was it in the same game that he'd sort of reacted to Vieira? That was when he got Vieira right. sent off. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, there were, there were a number of uh, a number of things. On the, on the previous Arsenal podcast I did on the Tuesday Club, mm. Alan Davis asked me, if you had George W. Bush and Ruud van Nistelrooy in a room, and you had a gun with one bullet in, what would you do? And I said, I would shoot George W. Bush in the head and pistol whip Rude van Nistelrooy to death. And I understand that was an extreme reaction. And it could have worked the other way around as well. But that sort of showed up the feelings that we had about Rude van Nistelrooy. Um, I mean, I thought, you, I, thought you, I thought you were going to ask the question about the when you said Invincibles. I, I immediately go back to it. I can't get it out of my head. The, the story that, and you won't mind me telling you this, um, of uh, Tony Adams explaining to some um, quizzical fan that he that he's an invincible, and um, and then oh, yeah. the bloke saying, "Well, no, you <laughs> retired in 2002 with Lee," and I'm standing there going, "Yes, Tony, do you remember? I know it was those dark ages." way back but do you remember and he went no no I was an invincible in 91 because when they lost he was in prison so he counts that as him being invincible in 91 which just cracked me up at the time and Tony tells that story on a regular basis it's brilliant well that's outstanding I'm prepared to give him that one what was, what was your favourite invincible moment Ian? oh man well I mean I, I'd imagine I mean we're going to talk to Amy about this but I'd imagine Amy might talk about Thierry Henry when we were 2-1 down Liverpool. or 2-all in fact yeah. when we were playing Liverpool yeah. having lost to Manchester United and Chelsea in two different converse, uh, competitions and that it was a very emotional day that mm. I think and, and when Thierry Henry left Jamie Carragher on his arse and went through and scored that goal that I think was the one of the best moments I've ever seen in football so yeah. I would talk about that uh, one other moment, which was not a happy moment, but did make me laugh. When Wayne Bridge scored the goal right. uh, that knocked us out of the Champions League. Where are you going with this? Here? Well, you'll see. When Wayne Bridge <laughs> scored that goal that knocked us out of the Champions League, uh, everyone around us in in uh, uh, in our area in the West Ham where we sat, everyone around us, including Keith Dover, uh, who was part of a, uh, another podcast and a good friend of ours, uh, got up at the same time, went, oh, sod this, and went to leave problem was because everyone went to leave nobody could get out right? right so for the next seven minutes we're sat there all grumpy in our seats me and alan keith is about 10 yards away just standing in the queue he couldn't <laughs> go anywhere so that did it sort of cheered me up a teensy weensy bit but um yeah i i can't go beyond thierry Henry really scoring that goal against carragher great shout it was, it was a beautiful moment we beat Portsmouth last night. Lee, you were telling us you were at a function, so you didn't see the game. James, you were there at the game last night. I was there at Fratton Park, yeah. After what happened with Olympiacos, Lee, there was a lot of people saying, oh, this is the end, it's not going to happen for this club, we're all on the way downhill. I've been yeah. trying to push the optimism side of things. 
Just to talk briefly about last night, we had six players 20 years old or under. Mm. Isn't that, Lee, a, a very promising place and a place that most teams would like to be in? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's, as we know, and as I've pointed out on this podcast many times, especially to you, um, when, thing, when things go well for a moment, we're not going to win the league. And when things go badly for a moment, we're not going to get relegated. So, that's, And I think players are, are slightly more um, pragmatic with results and, and they, because it basically is as you know it's our it's our job and we go out there and we do the best and sometimes we don't do our best but it's a results game and every th- and we're prepping and recovering all of the time so there's not that euphoria when you win a game because immediately afterwards you've got to get ready for the next one so you you kind of live in little sound bites of yeah well done yeah tap each other on the back and then get on with the next thing and i think fans can sometimes go you know like you know, you're a good example. You go to that point of we're. I'm sorry to keep using you as an example. It's all right, it's fine. You're the epitome of a fan. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I so take that as a compliment. You know absolutely, that. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I mean, sometimes I wish I was more of a fan, but I, I kind of got the ex-player broadcaster kind of theme on it. So I, I sometimes lose that joy when we when we win not as much as fans and I, I don't enjoy it as much as fans but on the flip side of that I don't get too down although you probably disagree when we lose but I think that the state of the club at the moment with Arteta and I've said it before it's going to take time but there's been lots of positives and one of those as you quite rightly pointed out is that that youth and that um, that drive and that hunger hunger drives uh, performance we know that, and if you can if you can nurture that and and direct it, then the club is in is in good hands moving forward. I'd like to see a few more senior players on the on, on the on the kind of learning curve, helping them along, and that's something that Arteta, I'm sure, will be looking at to try and guide those because he can't do it all himself. No. He'll realise that you know from an early start, he can't do it all himself. And he's inexperienced as well, James, isn't he? That's the point. He is inexperienced. I wanted to ask you about this, Lee, actually, because yesterday after the game, as the players were leaving the pitch, your friend of mine, David Louise, he grabbed uh, <laughs> Reese Nelson and he was yeah. giving him the sort of Pep Guardiola pep talk. You know, he's giving him like tactical instruction as they were leaving the pitch, had his arm around him saying, you know, you want to go here, you want to go there. Is that yeah. the sort of thing that you think a young player like Nelson will actually take kindly to, or is that a bit of a, a bit of a pain to be honest to have that done to you in public as you're leaving the pitch? Lee, Lee, before you answer this question, should me and James go for a cup of tea for 15 minutes while you rant <laughs> on about David Louis? <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, that's a perfectly I, fair question. Yeah, absolutely, and um, I, I get what you're saying about it being in public or or whatever. I, I prefer to to see all. Why is he doing it when he's doing it there? Um, that's the question I'm asking. If it was, I'm just I can only I can only give you examples and my experience. I yeah. can't get David Louise's head. I don't know him as a person, um, so I, I would have taken him in to one side in the dressing room and just said, right, da 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 da, because there's a time and a place for everything. So that wouldn't have been my way. But mm. I'm not saying that that's the that's the uh, a bad thing. Any information to a young lad is good. It's a, also what you've got to understand as well is. I don't know the youngsters in that respect, in that dressing room, whether he's one that would take information. Because I've played with loads of players, who are younger players, who you try and put an arm around them at some point and the, you can see that they go, nah, kind of, I know, I'm all right, I know best. Mm. And you go, well, fine, you know, knock yourself out and good luck. 
yeah. then they'll probably find their own way and they might not need your help. But I've never met a young player that uh, knows everything and there's, you know, there's very few of them around. You sort of, you know, the Messies and the Fabregases and the really talented players, even those those sort of players need a, a little guy to... Because you think if you're if you're a really good young player and you get in Arsenal's first team, it's quite difficult not to think you're the bee's knees for a moment in time. And it's about who you've got around you that that just pulls you back. Your your parents, your close family, your brothers and sisters, your close friends, and then you start getting into the dressing room. Who are you close with in the dressing room? Who you look? Who do you look up to? Um, so I, I, you know, that wouldn't have been the way I'd have done it. But I welcome. Obviously, um, David Luiz having a having a word with a young player, and and hopefully they maybe can turn around to him and say to David Luiz because you never stop learning. Maybe you should stick your head on a ball when it's in the six yard box. <laughs> Just saying that's all, and that's fair enough. It's perfectly worth saying. I'm glad you said it. I mean, I mean, I would say possibly you know, Cesc Fabregas would have learned from Xavi and Iniesta. Messi may well have done as well. Gerard Piquet, there were some, yeah, um, uh, there were some se- you know senior players in that dressing room when they arrived as well. Um, yeah. I mean, Amy wrote a piece this week, and we'll ask or oh, last week uh, about Arsenal having to adjust to the new reality mm. of where we are. I mean, I, like I say, I am optimistic in terms of the young players, but let's not forget we we got knocked out in the last thirty-two in the minor European trophy. We're currently what tenth. In the Premier League, it's going to be a fight. Um, do the fans? I'm asking both of you guys this, right. James. I mean, I ask you: Do the fans have to just uh, to adjust to the new reality? Will it make it a bit easier if we don't expect them to walk over every team we play against? Well, I think whether or not we have we, we have to, we'd have a choice. You know, I don't think it's uh, it's been forced upon us. It's been such a reality check, I think, going out of Europe in the way that we did because. You know, I think we kind of kid ourselves that we're a Champions League club on hiatus. I think that's how it feels a lot of the Four time. Four years of hiatus. Well, that's it. At what point does a hiatus just become the status quo, become who you are? And I think Arsenal, right now, they are a Europa League team and a Europa League club. And I feel uncomfortable saying it. I don't like it, but it's the truth, isn't it? But Lee, does it actually make it easier for the players on the pitch if the fans have reasonable expectations of what the team can produce? Well, I think that one's a double-edged sword a little bit, and it's there's two sides to it. There's there's the oh yeah, let the expectations drop so we can just get on with our job and not and not be put under pressure because mm. we're not expected to do that. I mean that knock yourself out if you're a, no disrespect to these teams, but if you're a, a Burnley or a Southampton or a Palace or something, then yes, your expectations are, are a lot lower. Um, but we are and still are the Arsenal and that there, there's got to be um, high expectations from a club point of view from the from the top to the bottom as, as to what our standards are and how we get back to those but the reality of it is that we're way 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 off that and so there, there will be a natural drop of expectation because people are not looking at Arsenal the fans are not looking at Arsenal now going um right, we can get in the top four. We're kind of hopeful that because of what's happened to City, we can, might be able to nick the fifth place. But in reality, you know, we're now going, we're out, we're out the Europa League. How are we going to get, how are we going to stay in that? And the, and the repercussions of that at club level, at hospitality level, at fund, you know, funding the transfer market with um, 
off the field activities. And I know for a fact that the club is now, you know, opening envelope C as to what they do if they're not in the champ in the Europa League. What? How do we run the club based on that? And they've never opened. They've never, they've never had to go to that envelope yet. Not for, not for so years. A, a and B have been put back in the cupboard, and they're looking at C. Right. Okay. So we're not in the Europa League. How do? Where do we get all our our money from? Scary thought, isn't it? It must be mid nineties when we were last not in Europe at all. Maybe twenty two years in the Champions League, and then another four or five in the um, in the Europa League as well. It's been quite a long time. Lee, you were talking about the finances there. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, personally, I don't like the Europa League. I'm, I wish we were still in it, but I really don't like the Europa League. I was reading Tim Stillman, who who uh, goes home and away, mm. uh, his column, and he was saying how he doesn't like the Thursday Sunday. Yeah. He prefers Saturday and Tuesday or Wednesday for a game. I, I, you know, it's not that I don't want to be in the Europa League, but you look at Leicester this season, they're having a good season without the Europa League, aren't they? They are. I mean, I, I wanted to ask you about this, league because a few people around the club have said to me, oh, the players, the players hate the schedule as well. They hate playing Thursday, Sunday. And to be honest, they'll be sort of glad to see the back of it. Do you find that plausible? No. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I just—it's something that came up in the week, and I thought, not what's sure. The about between the thir- what's the difference between a Thursday, Sunday, and a Wednesday, Saturday? Well, none actually, none. But as a fan, it's nice on a Saturday afternoon to go to the games. It is, yeah, that's sure. part of the fun of it. But as a player, in the end, you 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 play the game whenever you play. Then you have a couple of days to recover. Then you get ready for the next game, and it doesn't matter what days they're on, right? Well, in th- that yeah, and that that's that's all in the mind when you start going. Oh, I hate playing on Thursday. You get an extra day off because you're not playing till Thursday. Then you might lose a day the following week because you're playing after this. You play Thursday, Sunday. You might be playing on a Saturday again, so you kind of lose a day there. But mm. I, it doesn't make any difference to a player. So, well, again, it didn't make any difference to me no. and the team and the players I played with, whether it was a. Um, whether these t- it's, it's the amount of days rest you get, not what day it is of the week. It doesn't make any difference. So, all right, assuming that we are accepting of the new reality, and I still want to ask you, I understand the point you're making that we are the Arsenal and we should play a certain way, but the fact is we don't have the players to play a certain way. I remember watching us for years lose big away games against the top, the other top six teams mm. because we yeah. didn't... We didn't accept the reality that we weren't as good as them. Arsene Wenger sent them out going, you're better than everyone else. And we of, often lost. Whereas the one time we went to Manchester City and uh, and Francis Coquelin played as a holding midfielder and we won 2-0 and we all went, oh, right, that's what we do. But you're saying that if we're the Arsenal, we can't play in that way because... No, no, no you're... No, you're... The the Arsenal has got nothing to do with the style of football that we're playing because because if that was the case then nobody would have gone and watched us under George Graham because we weren't fast flowing loads of passing passing it out the back brilliant technical uh, team then but we were the Arsenal because we carried on the traditions of the club and we went out there and played for the cannon on the chest so they remember the name on the back that was what the Arsenal's all about. So that's the bit I'm trying to get. You know, we ask that we we have to still believe we're the Arsenal and start taking um, taking notice of that um, that statement about that being the most important thing on your chest and playing for that. 
that's what I mean about being the Arsenal. So we can go out and play. We, we Yeah, we, of course we'd like to play Arsene Wenger in his heyday style football and be brilliant and win trophies and and never get beaten. But the reality of it, as <laughs> yeah. you rightly said, is the, the team isn't there and there's a, a, a massive um, transitional period coming up. But we could still be the Arsenal and go through that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And we need to you know, think like a big club, act like a big club. I think reducing those expectations is actually dangerous. I think down that path you can get to mediocrity. I think really yeah. you, you still need to have big ambitions for the club, but that doesn't mean yeah. you can't ally that with a bit of patience. I think it's about understanding that you know, we're not going to get there straight away, but that our aims shouldn't necessarily be any lower. So, Lee, how do we get out of this then? I mean, I mean we have an owner... And we haven't really talked about the owner, but we have an owner. It doesn't look like they want to put a huge amount of money in, but we do have to reinforce the uh, the squad. How do we get out of this current malaise, if you want to call it that, and get back to what we all consider is our rightful place in one of the top three or four clubs in the country? Well, that, that's a, that's the difficult question, and I that's think why we I have, asked you, Lee. <laughs> I know exactly, and that's why I'm trying to give myself time by making statements <laughs> like that. Uh, it's about um structure it's about discipline it's about those traditions and values that the playing for the arsenal is all about i think arteta um gets all that i, I believe in what he's what he's doing since he's been at the club we we're, we're seeing some of that come back into the team um and i i hope in the training ground etc um i'd still like to see no sunglasses in the mix zone but that's another point <laughs> Um, yeah. But there's, there, I think over a period of time, and he can't do it straight away, he's been there five minutes, over, over a period of the next 18 months or so, I believe those values have, will be reinforced. And then it's about then the difficult bit. I think that's the easy bit because you, the manager is the manager, the coach is the coach. He can say, right, this is what we're doing. That's not acceptable. You do this in training or you don't play. You don't wear glasses in the mix zone. You don't do this. You don't do that. And that's the easy bit. Yeah. And because players don't toe the line, then you just go right. You're out. See you later. And you get a kid in who who will who will do what you're telling him to do. The difficult bit next is the recruitment. The the, the team is blatantly not good enough in lots of departments, and that's been a, a years of demise over the the way that the recruitment has been um, has been uh, kind of started to be diluted with the amount of money that's available and then when money's been there to spend has it been spent wisely and in the right areas that's again that's Arteta him putting his his requests over to the executive committee and then the board and getting the players that he wants is the money available to do that I would suggest not so it's hugely reliant on that's why it's such a big job for him because in, we're all looking at him going now what are you going to sign and he won't, he won't necessarily come out, I don't think so, and come out and go, well, I'm, they're not giving me any money, so I've got to go for these you know, C players or whatever. Yeah. His recruitment um, network is vital now to bring in the player that, one, has those values, first and foremost, because otherwise you never get that patched up. And you, If you sign someone just for the sake of, oh, he's a skillful player and he's going to do this, and you haven't done the due diligence on what type of character he is, that then you're doing it the wrong way round for me. Arsenal have always done it, certainly in my era, about getting the character right and and then the player will follow. And I think you've got to have a certain amount of 
um, luck with that as well. But there is there's there's characters out there who you can say he fits our club or he doesn't fit our club, yeah. and Arteta's got that on his plate as well. So the short answer is he has to get all the behind the scenes bit and his ideas over, which is the easy bit. The hard bit is does he have any money, and if that that's your X amount of money. What's your recruitment like, and and have you pinpointed the areas that that need fixing before the other ones? And we've got a lot of areas in the team that need tweaking. That was the short answer, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, James. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we could exactly. It is a really difficult question, but I do think we're talking about money. Look, the financial results came out this week. They weren't losing great. money. We're losing money for the first time in a long time. We're very unlikely to have Champions League football. We might not have any European football next year. So, given that, it's not just who's Arteta going to sign. I think it's also who's he going to sell. Because Arsenal have been a really bad club at selling players in the last few years. They've not turned profit on enough people. And when Lee talks about you know who fits in this team, who doesn't, the character of the side, I think there are difficult decisions for Arteta to make about the players he lets go in order to be able to then bring people in. But that, Lee, James, I mean... Stop, sorry to go on, Jack, go on, Lee. James, when you look at that, who, are you, who would you look at that team and go, right, we're going to get X amount for... and and. Who 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 would they sell in order to be able to fund another transfer? And yeah. you're only and the ones that are standing out off the page are the ones that you're desperate to keep because you're kind of going, they're the ones we're going to get money for, but they're our best players. Yeah, the I... rest, you know, with all due respect, the rest of them. Who's going to take? Who's going to take Özil off your hands? Who's going to take the uh, the other players that we could mention? Mustafi. Now, yeah, I mean, how much money are you going to get for Mustafi? Not a lot. Not a lot. But, and even even with a decent little run of form behind him, I don't think it's going to happen. So, you know, they've been trying to get a shot at Mustafi for a few years. I mean, last summer they were shopping him around Europe trying to get someone to take him. So I appreciate it's not all that easy, but I think they will, might have to make a really difficult decision on an Aubameyang or a Lacazette. Aubameyang's the one. Aubameyang's the one, let's be fair, right? He's yeah. scoring goals at a rate. We know he's a superstar player. But Eddie, last night, I mean, you'd like to say you've written a piece about about Eddie and Ketia, and we'll get to that in mm. the second section. But the youth, it has to go down the route of young players with a few older heads, maybe you know guys who've got lots and lots of Premier League experience, but who don't cost a huge amount of money, because that is what we are. We are constricted by an owner who doesn't want to spend cash. Correct. Well, I don't want to leave it there. That seems a little slightly <laughs> depressing moment. Amy talked about adjusting to the new reality and we're going to speak to Amy in a short while. Lee, we're going to let you go. Nice to speak to you, Lee. Brilliant. See you next week. If we're still alive, we will speak Stay to you healthy. next week. We will do that. Lee Dixon, everyone. Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com. You can have the opportunity to sip eight Yes, you heard it right. Eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash off and pay the postage of £4.95. And as if that wasn't enough, as a listener to Handbrake Off, you'll get two extra free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They're now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more. 
As an independent UK company, Beer52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer52 is that you can leave any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack is thrown in too. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash off to get your case free. And don't forget right now, listeners get two extra free beers. This is Handbrake Off, brought to you by The Athletics, the Arsenal podcast. Joined now by Amy Lawrence. Good afternoon, Amy. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Are you okay, by the way, Amy? Yeah, Amy's, Amy's yeah, got yeah. the lurking. I'm in quarantine. She's in quarantine at the moment. <laughs> uh, and um, I want to talk about the Invincibles, right? We started off, we had a little chat just before about the Invincibles. You wrote a piece uh, about the Invincibles. There's been lots of uh, of crowing, I would say, from Arsenal fans and lots of uh, negativity from Liverpool fans. Salty comments, I think is the phrase on Twitter mm. about, oh, we get stuck in the past. And I think the phrase that stuck with me, uh, Amy, you wrote in your piece, uh, fan culture has plenty of room for the art of petty one-upmanship. Indeed. I mean, personally, I really like the past. So, you know, <laughs> I don't have a problem going spending plenty of time there. Um, and I think that, as a football supporter, it's a really valuable part of your football experience. And when I think back to my my childhood self, um, and I was weird because little girls weren't supposed to like football. And I remember reading, you know, voraciously buying books and reading about the teams of the 30s and Herbert Chapman and trying to memorise about stats about Cliff Bastin and George Mayle and uh, Alex James and looking at pictures and through to the sort of fairs cup and the double and that's part of your kind of um your inner uh fabric of what connects you to your your club you were a weird girl um, though weren't you Amy, well obviously but that's yeah. fine i mean so many i um, don't mind people saying that not a lot has changed that's fine um but the, i think it's uh, for me part of why we care about our own club and why we like to um make comments sometimes about other people's clubs because it's not just about one match or what's happening now or what's happening today it's about the whole heritage of what you're representing you're buying into something you're saying i am a believer in this and i think obviously the invincibles is a huge part of arsenal's modern history and it's a, a unique achievement in the modern game and you can make comparisons about uh preston north end who did it in the inaugural season of professional football um when there were 22 matches uh, and some, some slightly looser interpretations of rules i think there was only halfway lines no cross and, and no, no crossbars yeah which is fantastic really? i really yeah. would love to see a, a yeah. game like that rude van nistelrooy's penalty. Van Nistelrooy's <laughs> penalty would have flown into well, the stratford end or wherever it was he took it james i mean it was i mean i mean my son uh, who's 18 so he he doesn't remember the yeah. Invincibles, but it was a huge thing for him when Watford beat Liverpool on Saturday. Yes, yeah, massive. And in the spirit of petty one-upmanship, is there anything more rich than Liverpool fans complaining about people living in the past? We've been dealing with that for like 30 <laughs> years, haven't we? Have that, Scousers. <laughs> Unbelievable. No, that's a fair point. I mean, there was so much stuff. There was a there was a, a an argument on Twitter between uh, Arse Blog and Miguel Delaney, who was who said that our um, achievement in that season was was lessened somewhat by the fact that Chelsea beat us in the Champions League quarterfinal. So a Premier League rival beat us. I mean, who cares? 
Who honestly? I uh, seriously, who cares? All I know is there were tw- there were thirty eight games. We won twenty six, drew twelve, didn't lose any. Yeah. Show me the show me the other team in the modern era that's done that in English exactly. football. There isn't one. It's, exactly. it, it's a unique achievement, and as long as it remains that, it will be incredibly special. Well, it will always be incredibly special to Arsenal fans. And Amy, the point in you made in your article because I read uh, you were talking about that, and there was a picture, in fact, in the Athletic, and there was Thierry Henry and Sol Campbell sitting on the pitch drinking it all in. And the point you were making was that most of the players, it's only as they've retired and time has gone on that they've realised what a gigantic achievement it was. Uh, exactly. And, and that's why with every year that passes, you know, this this happy Invincibles Day thing, which is almost, you know, well, <laughs> something needed to take o- over yep. from St. Tottenham's Day and that turned out to be the thing. Um, but it is celebrated because the longer that time goes by, the more that this mystical achievement that nobody even thought of, uh, apart from Arsene Wenger, as something worth chasing. Um, it, it, it has this resonance. And I do remember some of the players when I spoke to them for the book saying how, you know, nobody nobody went into a season thinking you're going to be unbeaten. It just no. wasn't something that you aim for. You you know, you try and win the league and you try and win some cups and you try and qualify for Europe. And if you're a, a forward, you try and get be a top scorer. And if you're a defender or a keeper, you try and get loads of clean sheets. And it just wasn't in the thinking apart from Arsene Wenger. I mean, when you stop and think about it, it is quite mad. He had this idea of doing something that nobody really cared about until he actually did it. Mm. And now, of course, people care about it because Liverpool are going to be unbelievable champions this year. But let's not kid ourselves that they wouldn't have loved to have been unbeaten. Of course. Yeah, of Alongside course. it. Uh, Amy, there can is I... a purity in the achievement. You know, that zero is is very meaningful. Uh, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. Can I ask you, by the way, Amy? I love favorite... that zero. Oh, I agree. I mean, listen, zero didn't exist until 600 AD, did it? So, you know, it was only 1300 <laughs> years after that. Um, can I ask you, Amy, your favourite um, uh, moment in the Invincible season? Now, bear in mind, um, Lee and James basically went for Martin Keown. Uh, what would you? What did you say? The, the way he hung over him like a bat. A demented bat. <laughs> demented said, yeah. bat over Ruud van Nistelrooy. Um, I mentioned uh, Thierry Henry scoring that goal against Liverpool in the week that we lost mm. two games in two different cup competitions against Man United and Chelsea. Uh, do you have another one that you'd like to bring up? I, I'd have to say White Hart Lane. Um, mm. yeah. I... I, I to win the league at White Hart Lane, I mean, you know, it's up there with anything you ever want to do in your life. Yeah. And I was born in 1971 and grew up listening to my stepfather talking about going to that match. And, you know, it, it has this mythical status that, you know, you, even having been at Anfield and having been at Old Trafford, to win the league at, at White Hart Lane, like, come on. And suddenly there's the opportunity to do it again in your own lifetime with this great team that hadn't lost a game yet. And um, I, I was, I'd got myself in a position where I didn't have a ticket to the game. Um, and I, was, I thought I was all right with it. And then when I woke up that morning, I wasn't. <laughs> and I just thought, I, I, I don't know what to do, but I have to be there. Uh, because from the uh, working point of view, there were no available press tickets. I worked for a Sunday newspaper. I wasn't um, appointed to go to that game for work. And because it was on a Sunday, they certainly weren't going to give out any extra pass. It was quite a small press box in the old White Hart Lane. So that was out of the question. I'd missed out on getting any of the um, away tickets. And through some sort of unbelievable 
stroke of fortune and I have to credit David Dean for this. Uh, I think I phoned him up and begged him if he knew of anything. And he said, I'll make a call, came back to me and said, uh, you can go, in this, go and meet this bloke. And, and he was in the scouts enclosure um, oh. for that match, along with about five or six other Arsenal fans who had somehow <laughs> wangled their way in as well. None of us were scouts, amazingly no. enough. Uh, and the scouts enclosure was basically about 20 seats in the middle of the... Um, uh, the the stand, I think, opposite where the shelf was, um, just at the, the, the kind of towards the front of the upper tier. But the, everybody around you was diehard Tottenham. Arsenal scored after two minutes, and no matter how much you train yourself, that you're going to sit on your hands and you're not going to say a word. I just jumped up. It was just a complete, completely spontaneous instinct. As did these all four or five other people. We didn't know each other, of yeah. but of course by then we'd been spotted, and there was people trying to get us out. So it all got a bit fruity and there were stewards and, you know, it was all going on. But we managed to uh, remain inside for the whole game. And when the final whistle went and the rest of the uh, home supporters went, happy Sloped with their 2 draw. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, was, uh, it was an amazing experience to be watching the players and the Arsenal end celebrate just a handful of us in a, di- in a different stand at the ground. What a lovely day that was. My, if A big memory of that day, yeah. aside from being slightly gutted when they equalised, but you know what, you got over it once you saw them celebrating, was Arsene Wenger lifting the Premier League trophy in front of the Arsenal fans, that iconic picture, and there's no sweat marks under his arms mm. whatsoever. Mm. And I thought, did he ever change a shirt ready? Or was it, in fact, no sweat to go through the season unbeaten oh. and win the trophy at White Hart Lane? That sounds suspiciously like a change of shirt to me, I have it's to pos- say. It's possible, but I like the fact yeah. that he was he was the coolest man in White Hart Lane that day. And that was a very, very good moment. People have their feelings about Ashley Cole, but he was a homegrown Arsenal Academy boy. And somebody chucked an inflatable trophy at him. And he was he ran and planted it on the centre circle at White Hart Lane uh, because they weren't allowed to be awarded the trophy on the day because it was considered to be too volatile and provocative. Why they'd all so gone they home? Had a, they had a <laughs> <laughs> they they had an inflatable trophy instead. It seemed to do the job. That'll do the job. Uh, now. Uh... James went to the game last night. Uh, Portsmouth, uh, a win. We're in the quarterfinals of the FA Cup. Let's not forget. Possibly our last, well, certainly our last chance of winning the trophy. I think the Premiership's gone, I would say. But I know Liverpool lost. Liverpool lost this as a start or something. It's back on. Anyway, uh, you wrote, James, I've been talking uh, quite a bit in the last few weeks about the youth. Yeah. About how many young players. James, you wrote a piece about Eddie and Ketia. Scored again last night. That's three goals in four games. Yeah, he's done really, really well, actually. And it could have been five. I mean, he hit the bar a couple of times, so he's only missed by an inch here and there. He creates chances for himself because his movement in the penalty box is so good. And I think, you know, as Arsenal fans, don't we all sort of harbour a longing for a homegrown goal scorer? You know, it's been a long time since we had a, an Arsenal guy come through and score goals in the first team. So for him to be doing that is terrific. And he's got a great opportunity now, I think, between now and the end of May, to sort of make his case to Mikel Arteta because Lacazette's not pulling up any trees. Aubameyang, well, he might not be here next season. So Nketiah can really put himself in the mix. I think what fascinates me about uh, Eddie is when you, if you see him or you, you meet him, he is quite, uh, he's quite little. <laughs> and if you think about most of Arsenal's sort of great strikers of recent years, they tend to be pretty athletic specimens. Um, big strong guys and 
I, my question always about Eddie, everybody knew that he's a very, very natural goal scorer, that his predatory instincts are extremely well honed and that whether he played well, whether he played badly, whatever he did in every stage of every youth team that he ever played in, he scored goals. Um, and uh, the worry was how he was going to cope in a, in a kind of high-level Premier League uh, encounters as a sort of usually lone frontman because often these days there's not that many teams to play with a front two. So having to kind of fight the physical battle in order to give himself those chances. If he's got a chance of finishing, there's more more often than not he will take it. But it's get it's it's being able to impose himself on the toughest encounters that I I really hope can be achieved over a kind of sustained period of time. But I think that's his biggest challenge. What? People don't people are not going to worry about whether he can score goals if he gets those chances. It's whether he can uh, exert himself to be a kind of you know a focal point if you like up front for the team. Well, James, you in the piece you said that Chelsea let him go because they had a choice between him and Tammy Abraham, and Tammy Abraham being a bigger physical specimen. One of the reasons that they let him go, and they were amazed. People who worked outside were amazed that they let him go. Yeah, Tammy was a bit older, but I think you know there was an emphasis in the academy on size. There always sort of has been a little bit of that bias in English football of you know we we want someone who's tall, we want someone who's a good physical profile. And in catcher as a centre forward was short. I think Tammy Abraham's about six seven inches taller than yeah, him. But you know what? Uh, Ian Wright is only five foot eight. Well, there and you go. He got hundred and whatever it is goals, eight eight. He's selling goals for Arsenal. So and, and you know Eddie's quick. And he's quite strong in his upper body. I think Amy's right. You know, there's a lot of work for him to do. You can't really get away with playing for a team at the top end of the Premier League and just being a finisher. You know, even Sergio Aguero, probably the best finisher in England, when Pep came in, he changed his game, didn't he? He made him do so much more overall for the team. But Eddie is doing what Mikel's asking at the moment. And Arteta was so effusive in his praise of, of Eddie last night. You know, he's really happy with the work he's putting in. There's a long way to go, but I think the fact that he's scoring goals is a fantastic start. Just on the Ian Wright comparison, I think it is telling that Ian Wright was invariably part of a pair, whether he, when he first came in and it was with Alan Smith or mm. Kevin Campbell, and then obviously with Dennis Bergkamp. Uh, and if you can imagine putting Eddie into a, a front line with, you know, with a great player next to him, I think that it, it would be amazing how much he would enjoy himself and get loads of opportunities. So it's that question, can he do it more or less, you know, with that responsibility on himself? That is true, but the game has changed, doesn't it, quite a bit. There's very few teams, aside from Burnley, who play two up front, but you do have the two fullbacks bombing on. So there's hopefully more possibilities from Saka or, you know, I was going to say um, <laughs> Socrates on the right. Uh, but he played <laughs> yesterday, but, you know, from the right from the right wing back. So there are opportunities for him. I, uh, I mean, Amy, you also wrote a piece last week about ju- adjusting to the new reality. We had a chat with Lee beforehand about that. Um, the new reality is we've got owners who don't want to spend the money, but we've got some outstanding young players, Eddie being one of many of them. Look, I think probably the best example for Arsenal is Ajax of last season. You know, if you want to, it, it is doable. It's very, very difficult. If a lot of, if you have immense talent in your youth ranks and you're clever about exactly the people that you put around them, who are the experienced players. And, and Ajax went and bought uh, Danny Blint uh, back into the team and bought Tadic, uh, who were exactly the, right complementary 
things for that team to help those young players through and be important at the back and at the front of the team. And if Arsenal want to stick with this young group and want to make them believe that they can do something special and also want to keep them together, and that's significant. Now, I remember Evan van der Sar saying that he sat down with, there was, I think, seven or eight of those young Ajax lads that had come through, you know, in the same two or three year group. Um, and, you know, people were already talking about the players who ended up going. Um, and they could have gone at 17, 18, 19 and so on. And he sat them all down and he gave them a kind of inspiring um, a comparison. He, he gave every one of those young players a sort of club legend to aspire to and showed them images of them winning things and doing great things in the past and said, yeah, you can go, but you can stay with us and you can do it here. And then, you know, they had the most incredible run in the Champions League uh, and were one of the best teams in Europe last year, um, as well as, you know, doing great things domestically. And it, it's that blend, though. It's getting the right people in the right positions so that all the great young players around them can can show what they can do. You know, Amy, I love the whole comparison with Ajax, except for the losing in the semi-final of the Champions League to Spurs. <laughs> but other yeah, than that, it's outstanding. It James, you wanted to say something. Yeah, I was just going to say, sort of taking my objectivity hat off, you know, and just talking about it purely from a fan perspective. Seeing Eddie, Reese Nelson, Joe Willock, kids who come up together at Hale End, who are really close friends, who have been, you know, steeped in Arsenal from a young age. Yeah. It's great, isn't it? And like, I would love to think that that could be the strategy to get us back where we need to be. That would be a brilliant way for this story to, to go. Uh, Amy, we're going we're gonna to stop in a second. Before we do, we need a song. We need a song from you guys. Uh, if we have any ideas... Um, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure there's many songs to, uh, to sing about Olympiacos losing in the last 32 of the Europa League. But we're through at the quarterfinals of the FA Cup and we are still invincible. James, what have you got? Well, thinking about my favourite invincible moment, uh, Martin Keogh, and I was thinking Bat Out of Hell, obviously. Barbary <laughs> Van Nistelrooy. I'm liking it. Um, Invincibles... I think I went for Live Forever Oasis because they will do. Amy? Well, I, I quite enjoyed the whole hoo-ha about, you know, what, what, whether the Invincible Achievement was worthy of, of celebrating um, that, that people outside of the club seem to be getting a bit het up about. So I thought Le Freak by Chic. <laughs> OK, it's a great tune. Um, I'm going to have, uh, this is for Liverpool. Uh, it's by Beck. It's Loser, OK? <laughs> um, <laughs> just, you know what? Petty one-upmanship, Amy. You gave me the title. That's what we're <laughs> going to call the podcast, I think. Um, anyway, uh, we have been the uh, handbrake of podcast for The Athletic, the Arsenal podcast for The Athletic. Thanks to Amy. Thank you to James. Thanks to Lee Dixon. Thanks to Charlie for uh, looking after us as well. Speak to you soon. Drop. And thanks to Watford as well, yeah. <laughs> and for ad-free podcasts, make sure you subscribe to The Athletic and listen through the app. You can get a 40% discount now by using the code ArsenalPod. Pod.